Let us now turn for our scripture reading, which is also our text this morning, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9, we'll read through the whole chapter. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, where the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Geza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Geza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he, shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with slingstones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this chapter begins... A new section of uh, this prophecy of Zechariah, introduced with those words, the burden of the word of the Lord. We have that language repeated uh, later on at the beginning of another significant uh, section of this prophecy. Uh, The burden or the oracle of the word of the Lord, it's an utterance of God, but it's translated burden here because... Uh, That is to uh, indicate, to communicate something of the fact that this is a heavy and a solemn prophecy that Zechariah here uh, gives. 
Now he continues to address the situation of God's people who had uh, returned from captivity in Babylon, but who are yet surrounded by hostile nations. And uh, you may recall that at this point, yet they dwelled in a city without fortifications. Uh, there was no wall uh, surrounding Jerusalem at this point, providing safety and security from all their enemies. And so Zechariah certainly is uh, giving comfort to his people, assuring them of God's presence and deliverance. Uh, but the meaning of this prophecy, as is so often the case in the prophets, uh, and that's clear even from this chapter, as we'll see, the meaning of this prophecy is not limited to that particular circumstance, but it extends far beyond that situation, providing God's people, providing the church with great consolation, great comfort and hope beyond these days of Zechariah, even to this day, and beyond this day to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Now, the most recognizable, the most familiar passage or verse of this chapter is most certainly verse 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you recognize those words because they're actually quoted on numerous occasions in the New Testament in connection with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the final week of his ministry upon earth. Now, this is not only the most familiar verse of this passage, but it really is the grand... Uh, center of the comfort and hope that's proclaimed in this chapter. It's really the foundation, the ground of that hope in a very important way. And so we'll look at this chapter uh, in connection uh, with this verse and what it teaches about our king. Rejoice in hope is our theme. Rejoice in hope at the coming of your king. And we'll see that that, that theme, in a, in a sense, has multiple layers of meaning as to the significance of the coming of the king. But to appreciate this passage, we need to go directly to what it says about the character of our king. Now, as I said, when we, when we read verse 9, if you're familiar with the Bible, you immediately think of what's often called the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, indeed, upon the foal of a donkey, surrounded by multitudes who were extolling him as the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord, cutting down palm branches and rejoicing and praising God. And that's proper, then, that we think of that. But it also may be helpful to try to listen to this prophecy in the way that the original hearers listened to it the Jews to whom Zechariah spoke in the first place. And we remember, for one thing, that at present they had uh, no king reigning over them. Now, that does not mean that the, that the house or the lineage of David uh, had been extinguished. Actually, Zerubbabel, the governor, was a descendant of David. But there was no king enthroned over Israel at this time, 
And yet, we must appreciate that the promise of a son of David who indeed would come and reign upon an everlasting throne shaped the hope and expectation of God's believing people. They looked for a king to come. They looked for the anointed one, the Christ, who would appear someday. Now listen to the description of this king who would come. He is described, uh, first of all, as just. As one who will be a righteous king. One who rules with justice and right. Who will uphold God's law. Who will deal justly with the oppressed. Who will be a defender of the weak. Who will punish evildoers. Who will establish fairness and equity. Righteousness. Furthermore, he is described in this passage as one having salvation. And these words are, are translated in various ways. I think it's the, the ESV, I forget now, I consulted another version that says endowed with salvation. It actually literally could be read as saved. Not simply having salvation in the sense of having something to bestow, but possessing salvation as one himself who is saved. In other words, it describes one who himself had been through a great ordeal, but who had been upheld and who had been delivered by God. Now, if we understand that in the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see how uh, accurate that is. Yes, the Lord Jesus is the Savior but he is the Savior who himself was delivered from the deepest hell and the pathway of obtaining salvation for others. And then furthermore, as he is one who is just, as he is one who is uh, vindicated by God, he is also described as one who is lowly, lowly. And that's most remarkable. And this is highlighted in this prophecy because we are taught here that this is a most prominent feature of his identity, of his character, of his heart, if you will. The rest of the verse is really just one illustration of that, where it goes on to say, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, this is one one actual expression of lowliness that will have a historical fulfillment in detail, but the point is much bigger than the fact that, well, this is the point by which you will know him. He'll ride a donkey. No, that's just one example of his character. He is lowly. And even his coming and appearance uh, reflects that. He doesn't appear on uh, the kind of war horse that's described by Job. The kind of war horses that would characterize the triumphs of an Alexander the Great or other uh, military generals and leaders. He will not appear in a chariot of fire. War horses, chariots, bows, those are the things that define worldly power. In fact, in the rest of the verse, we read the battle bow shall be cut off. 
I will cut off the chariot and the horse. Now that's a description of how this uh, king will establish peace. But it's defined in terms of those things that characteristically define worldly power. But this king comes lowly. And the lowliness of our Lord Jesus Christ is most comforting to us. Our salvation depends upon it. When this prophecy was literally fulfilled, at least in terms of that one event that has uh, an exact fulfillment of the language here, Jesus was entering Jerusalem. But he wasn't entering Jerusalem in order to gather a band of, of zealots, in order to organize his supporters and take on the enemies within Israel. And he didn't come in order to gather an army in order to defeat the enemies that surrounded Israel, occupied Israel, the power of Rome. He didn't come to defeat his enemies. He came to die for them. So that there would be a message of peace and forgiveness proclaimed beginning at Jerusalem and extending then throughout the world. How did he show his lowly mind? Though equal with God, he did not consider that equality with God, which was his eternal identity, something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the, the form of a servant, and was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. This is your king. This is your king who is proclaimed to you. This is your king who does not come to you uh, to, to terrify you and to, to subjugate you by his power and by his authority. Oh yes, that will ultimately take place for those who despise and reject this message of the lowly king, the prince of peace who dies for sinners. But the revelation of Christ here is one who is meek and lowly of heart. He comes in the lowliness, not only of his outward demeanor and activity, but that is a reflection of the lowliness of his grace. Among the, the very few times in which the Lord Jesus spoke of his inner life, of his, of his heart, he highlighted this, didn't he? In Matthew 11, verse 28, he said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And it's that description of the Lord Jesus Christ that encourages our access to Him. Come unto me, all you who are burdened and weary, all those who labor and are heavy laden, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls by, by coming to me. This characteristic of our Lord Jesus encourages our continual access to Him the confidence of his gracious acceptance. This characteristic of our Lord Jesus Christ is one in which the lowly have fellowship with him. You see, fellowship with the Lord Jesus is also enjoyed with a lonely heart. And that's important for us to remember, to appreciate the fact that 
our own pride, our own self-importance, our own defensiveness, our own self-justifications are a big hindrance to fellowship with the lowly Savior. And the pathway to close fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ is one of humility. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Oh yes, that is the eternal Son of God, no less than the Father and the Spirit. He dwells with him who is of a contrite spirit. Those who tremble at his word. And certainly likeness to him is seen by a lowly character. When Jesus says, learn of me, he is encouraging us to learn of his graciousness, as that is such an encouragement to our faith. It's really a foundation. It's the basis for our comfort and assurance in our relationship with his Savior. But to learn of him is also to be changed more and more into his likeness. It's in the knowledge of a lowly Savior that the Holy Spirit works in us to reproduce something of that lowliness that glorifies God. Certainly living for Him in relationship to others involves lowliness. Let this mind be in you. We spoke of the mind of Christ that Paul speaks of in Philippians 2. That mind whereby he humbled himself. And, and Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it's described how in terms of humility and lowliness, esteeming others better than ourselves. How is the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace preserved and maintained in the body of Christ? It's when more and more, God's children learn with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering to bear uh, with one another in love. Yes, living for Christ is also marked by this lowliness. But that can only be the result and the fruit of the knowledge of this Savior and a relationship to Him. It's the result of being captivated by this aspect of his beauty and his glory. This chapter ends with this exclamation, how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. I don't know about your translation. I have an asterisk at the word its with a marginal note. It says, or his. In other words, this uh, could well be and probably should be rendered, how great is his beauty and how great is his goodness. You can look up commentaries if you want to look into that further. In fact, in a way, they're closely related because the beauty and the goodness that ever is exhibited and displayed by God's people is the result of the beauty of the Lord being upon them. It's the result of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being reflected in them. It's by beholding the glory of the Lord that God's people are... Uh, transformed into his image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. But that means, brothers and sisters, that we have the gracious, lifelong privilege and calling to look to Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture and to see how comforting, how wonderful how precious is this description of himself given here, which he himself 
refers to in his self-description as one who is lowly. The gracious character of our king, he is lowly. And secondly, we look at the saving work of our king. And these things go together. We read that God liberates his prisoners. Now that's a great theme of of, uh, redemptive history, isn't it? God liberated his uh, prisoners from bondage in Egypt. Egypt for the Israelites was one uh, labor camp in which they were forced to work under hard conditions, and God rescued them, delivered them. Recently, Israel had been liberated from captivity in Babylon. But now here, even to these returned exiles, uh, we read, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now that's figurative language, isn't it? It's a description of the uh, the, the kind of situation that Jeremiah faced for a time when he was lowered into a pit, although there was water in it, in danger of, of sinking into it, or being overcome in the mud. But it describes a desperate situation of being in a pit, enclosed, captive. And God promises deliverance and liberation from that. And that means that this language reaches, doesn't it, to every kind of bondage. Bondage, bondage to sin and to Satan. In verse 12, we read, Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Prisoners. Those who faced captivity. Those who faced it a kind of enslavement. But they're prisoners of hope. And that means that they have a, a, a faith that, that believes in deliverance and that looks for that and prays for it. Doesn't that describe you? As a child of God, it still has to cry out sometimes, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I feel ensnared so often by by sin and doubt and confusion and temptation and troubles. And you look to God and you hear this word of assurance that God will deliver his prisoners of hope. Return. It says, return to the stronghold. Well, what is the stronghold? No, rather, who is the stronghold? It's a call to return to God. He is our refuge. He's our fortress. He's our strength. And God's people here in this unfortified, unwalled city were called to return to God and trust in His protection, His deliverance. God will appear in grace, double grace, grace upon grace in the way of deliverance. And didn't that mark uh, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work from the very outset as he announced it at the very beginning of his ministry, having been baptized and having been filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes to the synagogue in uh, Nazareth and he proclaims himself as the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord is because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. He comes with a message of liberation, freedom, and deliverance. There's no doubt that this deliverance that Isaiah or uh, Zechariah speaks of is a deliverance through Christ. 
Look at verse 11, the first part. It's one of those uh, details that we can easily uh, skim over. And I am skimming over some of the details of this chapter. We can't look in detail to ever, at every, uh, every point. But this is one that we need to pay attention to. Where the Lord says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Because of the blood of your... Well, what does that refer to? Well, God's covenant with Israel was always confirmed with the shedding of blood from the very beginning. The whole sacrificial system was grounded upon the reality of God's justice and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But God constantly held before His people that the way of peace with Him, the way of acceptance with Him, is through the shedding of blood. But ultimately, the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin. And so the assurance of salvation ultimately and only rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed the blood of the everlasting covenant and who secured the redemption of God's people. And because of the the blood of that covenant, our deliverance is assured. Furthermore, the king will reveal his grace to the nations. In verse 10, we read, he shall speak peace to the nations. And so the description there of cutting off chariots and, and, uh, uh, the horse and the battle bow, it's not simply a description of some kind of a military, uh, defeat or deliverance. It's combined with a message of peace that extends to the nations. Nations that were hostile towards God's people. But a message of grace is coming to them. Christ will go forth because of meekness and truth. He goes forth conquering. But He goes forth conquering, first of all, over the hearts and lives of His enemies, subduing them to Himself in mercy. He will go forth not with swords loud clashing. Well, how does He go forth? Well, you could describe it this way. Here comes this nondescript Jewish man. And he enters a town. He enters a village. He enters uh, some uh, city. And he starts talking. And he talks to some women that are gathered at a river. Or he enters the synagogue on a, on a, on a Sabbath morning where the local Jews are gathered together. And he talks to them from Scripture. Or he goes to the the marketplace and he talks to strangers. Or he goes to a rented hall where people are interested in what he says. And he talks and he talks and he talks. What's happening here? Well, that one talker, and you know who I'm referring to, and others could be mentioned, that one talker himself describes it with respect to the Ephesian believers, these Gentiles, who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says to them, of Jesus, he came and preached to you who were afar off. Well, when did he do that? Well, he did so through this talker. He did did so through an instrument that made known the word of the gospel. He preached peace to you the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 
by the power of his spirit. Through the instruments of people speaking his word, Christ goes forth speaking peace to the nation. That's not an empty word. Yes, it's announcement of deliverance, but it's announcement that is made effective by the work of the spirit because some believe it. And some call upon this Lord, this King, and they receive the forgiveness of sins, and they receive deliverance. They're saved by this King, and His kingdom is extended. Peace through the blood of His cross is made between God and men, and men and men, people who at once were at odds, are reconciled, and they live in peace and love, being united together in faith. Now, the full meaning of this prophecy indeed extends to the whole church of Jesus Christ. The Lord their God, we read in verse 16, will save them in that day as the flock of his people. As the flock. There is ultimately one flock of God's people. Who belongs to this flock of God? Jesus said that he had had sheep that he must gather into one fold under one shepherd. And these sheep come from a variety of different places. And there is a great deal of diversity among them. Differences in culture and language and personality and gender and occupation and class and you name it. But there are things that they all have in common. For one thing, they were all given to this king to be saved by him. Jesus often describes them as those whom the Father gave to him. And for another thing, uh, they all hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice. That is through the message of the word of God. People are gripped with the reality of who Jesus is. They call upon him because he calls them through the message of his word. And they come to him. And they are precious to him, like jewels in a crown. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. Well, whose crown is that? Well, it's the crown of the king. Because those who are saved by him reveal his glory. They're like jewels, setting forth the, the wonder of his grace. Yes, our salvation glorifies our king. His saving work is marvelous, and his dominion is forever. And that leads us, thirdly, to consider the righteous dominion of our king. Uh, the first seven verses of this chapter describe God's judgment. It's announced as a heavy message, and it gets heavy right from the get-go, because it describes the judgment of, of uh, the oppressors of God's people and their neighbors, right, beginning close at hand. People, uh, peoples who historically and even to that day oppressed them. There is Syria. Its capital was Damascus. There's Tyre and Sidon, farther removed indeed. The Philistines, various cities are mentioned of them. But they stand. Again, there's a figurative significance of this announcement of judgment against them specifically because they really stand for all earthly powers against God and against his people. And the point here is, in this description of judgment, the point is that all the power, all, all the pride, 
pride in wisdom, pride in possessions, pride in military might. It's all going to be overthrown. And it's going to be overthrown ultimately by God, by God alone. In verse 8, we have kind of a climax to this description of judgment where the Lord says, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. No, there's no wall uh, around Jerusalem yet, but as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is around about his people. And he is their strength. He is their deliverance. No matter how frightening, how powerful their enemies are. Perhaps uh, some of you have looked at the increasing military power power of communist China and how they like to display this with these parades and the demonstration of their tanks and such. And we think, oh, what a threat they they are. What, what, what a threat they are to the free world. Well, think about this. How would you like to be a Christian living in China? Think about Christians living in a country where there is such oppressive worldly power. You think they'd have reason to be afraid and tremble about the future. Not if God is their God. God is their protector and their savior. They have no need to live in fear and dread of earthly powers. They have a righteous king. Yes, God will protect his church. In verse 15, the Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. It's a description as if uh, these weak people are themselves somehow involved in God's defeat of his enemies, though it's with sing, uh, sling stones. And they're going to rejoice, and they're going to triumph, and they're going to feast in their victory. Now, you can read more of that in the book of Revelation. It definitely seems to describe uh, God's people as being active in defeating their enemies. We hear it in verse 13, I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim. Here, again, it's interesting because this is a description of a, of a united people of God. Ephraim belonged to those northern tribes that were carried off by Syria long before the Babylons took away Judah. But here they're presented as, as united, as belonging to God's army, who even participate in his victory as if Ephraim uh, is the bow and Judah, or Judah is the bow and Ephraim the arrow that is that is shot to defeat the enemies against the sons of Greece. They're made like the sword of a mighty man. And actually there are historical uh, fulfillments of a temporary kind that you can read about in the history of the Maccabees. If you're interested in uh, uh, studying the wars of the Maccabees, how God used these Jewish leaders to uh, uh, defeat repeatedly their enemies militarily. But again, the figurative significance of this extends far beyond that. The larger point of this prophecy is God's assurance of Christ's ultimate conquest over all his enemies and our enemies. The full meaning of Zechariah's prophecy here extends to the final uh, deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given a kind of a snapshot prophetic view of that also in the book of Revelation in the 17th chapter where we read of, of the beast and the harlot 
this city Babylon that stands for all the, city, the cities of this world and their opposition to Christ and the kings of the earth. And what do they do? They all gather together and they make war against the Lamb. They make war against the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to defeat every every enemy that rises against His church. Yeah, that comes to a climactic uh, deliverance when He comes again in glory. And every deliverance between now and then, temporary, uh, literal, physical, it's just a preview. It's always imperfect. And it's not what we set our hopes on. We set our hopes on the ultimate victory, described even by our Lord Jesus in his uh, letter to the church in Thyatira when he says, Behold, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. Now, there are, there are people that will read this and they'll freak out. They say, see, your Bible teaches uh, that uh, you people are going to um, somehow uh, go around and destroy your enemies. And you're all into this militant conquest of others. Wow, that's that's not the point of this passage at all. It is figurative language. And indeed, it involves the actual, literal, literal, final defeat of all God's enemies. But the point here is that Christ is going to be victorious. And everyone who is in Christ, everyone who knows Him as their King, are going to share in his victory. They're going to share the spoils of this conquest and the celebration and the joy of everlasting deliverance and entrance into that eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells, in which God upon his throne and the Lamb is the light and the glory of this new Jerusalem. It's prophetic imagery but the message is clear, and it's wonderful. Your king is coming. He has come. He has come in meekness, in lowliness, bringing salvation. He is still proclaimed in his meekness, in his saving grace and mercy. And he is coming again. He is the king of mercy and grace, ruling, omnipotent in every place. And that means that we need not live in fear. We ought not to live in fear. We ought not to live with a kind of defensiveness and anxiety about the enemies that we face in this life, the threats to our freedom, the threats to our security and well-being. You know, that can lead to a kind of defensiveness like a trapped animal and a kind of viciousness. Well, the Bible doesn't encourage that attitude. It teaches us to trust in the Lord and don't fret over the wicked. Don't get all bent out of shape. Don't be all anxious and fearful. You see, if you do, that's going to be a real hindrance to loving your enemies. It's going to be a real hindrance to looking at them as those who, who need to hear this, this good news of the gospel of peace. 
going to be a hindrance to a desire and an expectation that many of these enemies will become friends by the grace of God until he comes in judgment. Don't fret over evil, but trust in the Lord. How great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. That ought to be our occupation. That ought to be our focus when it comes to the future as well as the present. Rejoice in hope, for your king is coming. Amen.